Wives, of course, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so as wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church, and give himself up to her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body. But he feeds as he cares for it, and just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and, he, and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but what I, what I am talking about, Christ and the church, however, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your mother and father, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is a slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Thank you. Howdy. So I had Laura look over my notes last night and take out anything that might be hard to hear this morning. So um, in conclusion, let me pray. Father, thank No. <laughs> No, I'm joking on that. I never have my notes done on Saturday night. So, well, this morning we've got a passage continuing in our, our series in Ephesians, and one of the things I want to do is I want to just say up front, look, this is God's word. This isn't our word. This is God's word. And so we never apologize for God's word. But I do want to acknowledge from the get-go that this is a tough passage. And one of the things I want to do this morning is I want us to help, because we hear this passage read at weddings all the time out of its context. And it is a wonderful passage to read at a wedding, but it's even more wonderful if you know what's happened in Ephesians 1 through 4 and what happens in Ephesians chapter 6. And so what I want to do this morning, at least at the beginning, is instead of treating this just as a marriage sermon, like a marriage seminar, which we don't have time for and I am certainly not an expert in. I mean, this morning I drove to church and Laura walked. So 
I'm probably not even going to be semifinalist for husband of the year this year. Maybe most improved next year. That's what I got my sights set on. But this is not going to be a marriage seminar this morning. Instead, it's going to be an explanation of how God has designed your household, which includes your marriage, your kids, the people that you work most closely with. How has God designed your household to glorify him? See, the underlying point of this passage is every household has a center. Every household has a most important person or a most important idea. And the goal for the Christian household is that Christ would be the center of everything that you do in your household. So the goal this morning would be that we see this as a continuation of the glorious truths that Paul has been talking about in Ephesians, that we, before the foundation of the world, were made by God and loved by him to be his children. We were brought from death to life. We have been reconciled together. A wall of hostility has been taken down. We have been sent out to proclaim to the nations that Jesus Christ is Lord, and then we have been given the command to live like all that is true, to mirror God in our own actions, to love like he loves, to forgive like he forgives, to use our gifts to build up and serve others. And now he turns and he says, and in your households, do the same thing. Your household is like a little church or a little platoon, sometimes it's called, to serve God like an incubator for love and joy and peace and the fruits of the Spirit. Make your household centered on God. Now, if you come into our household, as many of you do on a weekly basis, you realize there is a person at the center of our household. She's about 17 inches tall, 90th percentile on weight. She is a Always in, if you come right in our front door, she's on the little mat in front of it. It is the centerpiece of our home. But it wasn't that way eight months ago. Before that, you wouldn't have found any baby toys. You wouldn't have found anything that would reflect that there was a miniature human here, little tiny shoes and outfits, and there would have been more closet space. And, but now we're in the throes of baby-proofing our home. She's just getting ready to crawl, and so we've got to go through our whole house and think, What could a baby get into? We've got to change our mindset from what is convenient for us to what is going to be safe for a baby. And in fact, it's not just our immediate family, it's our whole household because my parents went from one grandchild to four grandchildren in six months. So at their house, it is baby central. And if you come there, you will immediately get swept up into that. You have no choice. If you want to come and enjoy a conversation with other adults in quiet and serenity, this is not your place because it is focused on babies. If an alien had come down and looked at our house this past weekend when we were in Oklahoma City, they would have learned several things, one of which they would have seen eight grown adults singing Father Abraham and doing all the motions and five kids sitting there looking like, what in the world is going on? And if you came, you would immediately be caught into that because the center of our home from a human perspective is on these children. We've oriented everything in our household around these kids. And your household has a functional center. It has a most important person. And in the ancient world, one of the things that's so radical about this text is, in the ancient world, every household had a center. Every household had a most important person. It was the father, the man, the husband. That's the center of every home. (laughs) Now you know who's the center of our home. So 
Paul would have read, when this text was written by Paul and read by Tychicus in Ephesus, there would have been audible gasps when this was read. But it's not what we gasp audibly about. It's not, they would, they would have thought this first part, wives submit to your husband, sounded maybe like a little bit lax, but otherwise good. But when he got to husbands, love your wives as your own body, it would have been radical for them. Radical for them. And I'm not saying that like we need to think from that mindset to come to this text. I'm just saying this text has always been controversial. And as the culture has changed, it's been controversial for different reasons. And so for us, we hear this and we think it's controversial because of our cultural setting. But the word of God has been unchanged from the time it was given throughout all the history of the church until now. It has always been a little bit countercultural. It's always been like people, I remember when I didn't have any kids and you go to a kid house and you just feel totally out of sorts by why people would be doing this and devoting themselves and spending so much money and all of this, but then you have a child and you realize it's worth bending your life around them. What I want you to remember this morning from this text is it is worth bending your whole household around Christ. No matter how confrontational and subversive and countercultural it might feel, he is worth doing things God's way. So Paul is going to basically give us an overview of the household. What we have here is what's called a household code. And it's called that because it appears in all of Greek literature. You see these kinds of household codes and instructions everywhere. If you were a moral teacher of any kind, whether you were a Stoic, whether you were a follower of Plato, whether you were a Christian, whether you were a Jew, whatever you were, you had these household codes in your moral teaching. And a household in the ancient world is a little bit different than what we think of as a household. And this is why you get three examples here. Parents in a marriage, kids in a family, and servants or slaves in a household. This is the ancient household. Now, I've been giving out copies of Andy Crouch's book, The Life We're Looking For. I know several people in here have read it. I've been giving them out because I think one of the most brilliant insights in this book is your household is the most important group in your life. If you want to look at the way your, your life is going to go, look at your household. You will reflect the priorities and the trajectories and the emotions of your household. And in the ancient world, the household was, as Andy Crouch puts it, both a place and a people. Better yet, it is a particular kind of people in a particular kind of place, a community of persons who may take shelter under one roof, but more fundamentally take shelter under one another's care and concern. They provide for one another. They depend on one another. So if you go through the book of Acts, for example, you'll see things like Lydia believed in Christ and her whole household was baptized and followed Christ. In the Old Testament, you'll see Abraham and his whole household of 70-some-odd people traveled together. Your household is bigger than your immediate family. And your household often includes people that are not in your immediate family. Your household is the group of people that you most of the time do life with. So whether that's your closest circle of friends, your extended family that maybe live in your home, if you run a, a company and you have employees, then those people are likely in your household because you see them almost as much as you see your family. 
And your household are the people that depend on you, you depend on them. They sacrifice for you, you sacrifice for them. In the first century, it was really clear cut because they would build their houses all together. So you'd have an existing house, and then when the son wanted to get married, he would build on another house to the house, and then he and his wife would move into the same house. And the people that worked in the house, the servants and the slaves, would live in another wing of the house. So at some point, you have three or four generations of people, along with household staff and servants, all living together. And you know what we see in the New Testament? These become the first house churches. So when we say house church in the New Testament, like in Corinth, we know there's a whole network of house churches. These house churches started as a whole household worshiping and listening to the word together. Now, this really starts to put things in perspective. You're going to treat the people in your household a certain way if you gather together and worship together every week. Right, we see in the letter of Philemon where we're talking about a runaway slave who's being sent back to Philemon, and Paul says basically, treat him as a Christian brother because that's what he is. He is your brother in Christ before he is anything else. This is how a household works. It's the people that we are the closest with working together, depending on each other, worshiping together, and we have been called to organize our households in a certain way. Really, the bottom line here is that our households should be little Godward communities organized around what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, reflecting the family of God. Amen. You know, one of the most radical things that the New Testament says is when you become a Christian, you don't just get forgiven of your sins and put on a new path and good luck will see you in heaven. You get invited into the family of God. In fact, the church is the extended family of God. That's why we're called sons and daughters of God and brothers and sisters of each other. And so our churches on one level and our families, our households on another, should reflect the household of God. And you know, God has a certain way of doing things in his household. And our mandate as Christians is our household should reflect God's family values. That's our goal. So in our, in our houses, we read things like, um, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, in verse 22. Husbands, love as Christ loved, in verse 25. Your marriage reflects Christ and the church, in verse 32. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, in 6.1. Parents, bring your children up in the Lord, 6.4. Servants, obey as you would obey Christ in 6, 5 through 6. You see, every single command in this passage is premised on do it the way God does it. Do it the way God does it. Let your life and your relationships and the roles that you play in your household reflect the way God does things. Now, here we have a really important sidebar. There's a lot of instances where it hasn't been done God's way, but it's used God's words, right? There's a lot, well, the catch in our spirit is not because we've seen submission and love and all of that done well, it's because we've seen it done poorly, right? Not done in a godly way. The rail that runs around this entire passage, what I want you to see is your family should be done the way God does things in his family. And when it's not, it's not consistent with this passage, so as we're going to talk about in a minute, as we get down into the details of this, every time we see one of these commands, we say, well, how does God do that? You see, you see this, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Jesus do that? 
Wives, submit to your husbands. How did the son submit to the father? With equal dignity and worth. Children, obey your parents. How did Jesus in Luke chapter 2, although he was perfect, obey and honor his parents? So we, we take a lens at this text and we say, this is a reflection of the way that God does things. This is a reflection of how God's household runs. And so our little families, our households, our little churches and platoons are training grounds to love and serve and learn the ways of God. So Paul gives three big examples in this passage, marriage, parenting, and working, essentially. And we're going to focus on marriage this morning, and we'll see how much time we have, but maybe we'll put out some on parenting and serving um, in midweek on our podcast. But the paradigm for the household is the husband and the wife. That's why Paul introduces it first, and that's why he spends so much time on it. So I want, like I said, there, there would have been gasps when this was written and read in Ephesus, but it wouldn't have been in verses 22 through 24. It would have been in verse 25. And so I want to start there and then come back to verse 22. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, like Christ is doing this always until the end of the age with the church, the husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. This is where the gasp would have been. Husbands are to regard their wives at the same esteem, the same love, the same care as they would themselves, their own bodies. He who loves his, his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, Paul's going to bring in a scripture here to prove this. So think about the logic of this. The husband should love his wife as his own body. Why? Because she is his own body. Right? This is what was fundamentally missing in this culture is you're not just pretending, like, love her like you would. Love her because she is your own body. Because in Genesis, when God set this whole thing up, you know what he said? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One flesh. This mystery is profound, Paul says. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and his church. Let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, I want to point out that at the beginning of this passage, it should sound really familiar to you if you've been here for our Ephesians series. In verse 25, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Two weeks ago, we were in chapter 5, verse 2. And in the beginning of the section on how to live a Godward, godly life, it says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. This is word for word the same. The paradigm of the transforming power of love in the Christian life, when we come to Christ, it's because he gave himself for us, over us. If you remember that sermon, on our behalf, he laid himself over us and took God's wrath so that we could get God's mercy and grace. He loved us and laid himself over us on our behalf. That's what husbands should be doing. Amen. 
Word for word the same. You should love your wife in such a way that models as closely as possible, not just Christ. And, and by this, we don't mean like his brilliant teaching and all that kind of thing. No, love her by sacrificing yourself on her behalf, just as Christ did for us. Now, in the first century, this, this would have been radical because a woman did not have an equal voice to a man in Greek culture or in Jewish culture. This would have been like, you can make everybody angry with this one saying in a Greco-Roman church. See, a man could divorce his wife for any reason that he wanted to, but a woman could only divorce her husband if he became a leper. Okay, this is really unequal treatment here. So one of the things that ended up happening was a man did whatever he wanted because there was no recourse, and the wife did whatever her husband wanted so that she could stay in his household. And so what you have is a totally unequal, unrepresented set of interests in the home that revolved around the husband, that revolved around the man. And Paul's saying, you need to take that dynamic and completely flip it on its head. You need to love your wife in such a way that you put her interests at the same level as yours. See, to us, that sounds like that's like good, but not great. Shouldn't her interest be above yours? Well, when you're going from like negative 100 back up to here, it would have sounded so like such a big chasm for them. He's saying, you, if you were to do something for yourself, do that and more for your wife. If you're to make a consideration for you, do that and more for your wife. You are supposed to be laying your life down for her. In such a way that this isn't just phileo love. That's what the Stoics taught. They, you should have kind of a friendly love for each other as a married couple. This is not just an eros love, which is what our culture teaches, an infatuation kind of love with each other. This is an agape kind of love, a God-mirroring, others-first kind of love. It is a cherishing and a nourishing kind of love. So these two words basically encompass all of what a person needs to thrive. Not just base level sustenance, which as a husband in the ancient world is all you were really made to do. This is a what would your wife need to thrive, to be nourished, to be cherished. And this, this word cherished is interesting because it literally means to keep warm. So cherishing someone is to keep them close enough that they stay warm. Laura, because she's perpetually cold, wanted to write this into our wedding vows, that I was under the obligation at all times to keep her warm. But I think that's the picture that Paul wants us to get. Having somebody that's close enough, somebody that's cared for enough, that it never grows cold. Not physically, but emotionally and spiritually, that we give of ourselves in a way that creates a warmth in our home. Here's something I'm learning. We went to a conference a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things they were talking about for husbands was, in Psalm 103, one of the ways that God loves us is he knows our frame. He knows our frame. He knows exactly how he made us. He knows what makes us tick. He knows what we value. He knows the way that we come at something, and he's able to love us with a knowledge of who we are at the deepest, most intimate level. And I'll tell you what, one of the ways that I'm learning and not great at loving my wife, keeping her cherished and nourished, is knowing her frame. Spending enough time to know exactly who she is at the deepest level. 
Spending the time to actually listen instead of problem solving, right? Because if you problem solve, you learn nothing about the person and everything about the problem. But for men, if you listen, then you learn the person, which is the goal of a loving, cherishing relationship. Right, so husbands are to lay themselves down by knowing, loving, cherishing, and leading. Leading. So in the first century Greek world, uh, marriage was a contract, right? And we treat marriage this way too in our culture. A contract is something that people bind themselves to to protect their own interests. Right? The reason that you get into a contract is so that when your interests are violated, you can take action against the other person. A covenant is the exact opposite. Marriage, biblically speaking, is a covenant. You make a covenant to bind yourself to the interest of others. So your marriage covenant is actually a binding not so that your interests will be uh, protected, and if they're not, then you can do something about it. Marriage is a covenant in the sense that you have now bound yourself to the interest of the other party. Right, this is why, and this is one of the trickiest things about this passage, this is why every person is given their own instructions. Husbands, love your wives, lay yourself down for her. Well, what if my wife is not submitting? Right, we had some couple friends that right after they got back on their honeymoon, we were all having dinner, and uh, the, their woman in the other couple is also named Laura. And they were talking, and we get into this argument at dinner, and they are on opposite sides of this argument, you know, eight days now or nine days now, uh, blissfully married. And the guy, you can tell, is getting so exasperated, and he looks over and he says, fall in line, Laura. Fall in line, Laura. As you can tell, that did not end well for their marriage. <laughs> but that's what it says in this passage. Fall in line, Right? But it's directed to the wife. It says, wives should submit themselves. Men should love. So if your wife is submitting, not submitting, if you are loving in a way that's not really reaping any benefits, if there's something going on on the other side, your responsibility is still love. Lay yourself down. Sacrifice yourself. Lead in such a way by controlling what you can control. And the same is true on the other side. My, my husband is not leading. My husband is not loving me the way I want to be loved. Okay, God will take care of that. You continue to follow. You continue to do what the Bible says. So the husband is called to lead by service. This is exactly what we see actually in the covenant of the church. The covenant head in the church are the elders. That doesn't mean the elders are the boss of everybody. That means the elders are the ones who are charged with giving an account for what goes on. Right? Everybody is individually responsible before God. Everybody is a Christian on the same level as anybody else. But what an elder is appointed to do is to give an account to God for the atmosphere of the church. Is it believing the truth? Are the people getting the food they need spiritually? Are they being protected from false doctrine? I'm looking at you guys, God says, to the covenant representatives of the church. The family is the same way. The husband is the representative of the covenant. That's why he addresses it this way. The husband is not the boss. The husband is the representative. They're the one that is charged with giving an account for what the spiritual climate of their home is like. So the way that husbands are called to lead is not by being right all the time. In fact, we're going to cover this later. It's not necessarily even by winning all the arguments and being the one that gets the final word. It's by being the one who takes responsibility for how the home is being shepherded spiritually. Are you the one that begins to initiate what goes on in your home? 
Are you the one that thinks about and makes sure that you guys are having conversations about the spiritual health of your kids? Are you the one as the father and the husband of the home who is thinking of ways for your wife and your kids to grow? As the representative, you are being called to lead in your home. I had a friend when I worked at Canacuck who wore a shirt all summer that said thermostat on it. And it was because of this talk that he gave at the beginning of the summer, are you as a counselor going to be a thermometer or a thermostat? Are you going to be someone who reflects the temperature in every room? Or are you going to be someone who sets the temperature in every room? Are you going to be the one who takes it upon themselves to make sure that the spiritual climate, that the spiritual thermostat of this room is set at the right level where everyone is comfortable? And for a husband, this is what the biblical picture of leadership looks like. You are a thermostat. You are not a thermometer in your home. You are the person who is setting the spiritual climate of your home. So Paul says to the husbands, love sacrificially, lead, take responsibility for your family. And this is where the wives' instruction becomes a lot clearer. And wives, when your husband does that, follow him. Follow him. When he's doing that, follow him. When he's doing things that are anti-God and he's sinning, which is why we always get these counterexamples, well, I don't want to follow my husband into this because it's anti-God. Well, then don't do it. Like I said, this all reflects God's design. You're a Christian as much as this person is. Your salvation is in God alone. And you're in a covenant community with a husband who's leading. And when he leads, follow, support. Don't undermine, don't backbite, don't criticize. Be on his team, follow him. So let me flesh out a couple of things here because I think this is the one that gets misunderstood the most. First of all, submission in this passage is between a wife and a husband, not between women and men. There's no passage in the Bible that says all women should submit to all men. This is a covenant setting. It says, wife should submit to her own husband. I was reading this this week in the original, and I just laughed out loud a little bit because the word your own in Greek is the word idios. (laughs) That's a little close to home here. Wives, submit to your idios husband is what it says transliterated. And that's, it's where we get the word idiot, actually. But it means your own. It means in the context of your marriage, this applies. doesn't apply anywhere else. Like I said, the church, men and women, have the same command for elders. It's not because it's men and women. It's not because it's uh, better or worse. It's not because they have more spiritual value or less. It's because in this arrangement, these are the representatives. So it's women are called not to submit to men, but a wife is called to submit to her own husband. Secondly, submission does not mean obedience. So another interesting thing about this passage is children are commanded to obey their parents. Slaves or servants are called to obey their masters. Wives are called to submit to their husbands. Now, this is where you read this and everybody's like praying for an original Greek word study that it turns out it actually doesn't mean submit, it means do whatever you want. But, and so I never want to be like, yeah, the Bible doesn't say what it does say, but here's a little nuance. This is not submit in sense of obedience. This is submit in the sense of follow, right? There's a reason at the end of this passage, Paul says, see to it that you respect. You can respect somebody you disagree with. You can respect somebody that you're having trouble with. You can respect somebody that you love deeply, but you can't figure out why they're doing what they're doing. This kind of following, this kind of submitting, is like a military term where you have a person who's leading a charge and the other people decide to follow. 
right? This goes back to the commands for the husbands, right? Like I said, when the husband is leading something spiritually, when they're, when they're setting the thermostat in the home, it's like, that's our hill, okay, we're charging it, right? There's a reason it says submit as an action of a person who is in control of their own behavior as opposed to husbands, make your wives submit, right? This is given to the wives as a voluntary action to follow on a certain course of action. So, of course, the thing we always think of is this clearly doesn't entail things like abuse. This doesn't entail things like sinful patterns in your household. This doesn't include things like hateful speech and things like that. This means in the areas where you can reflect God, submit, follow, take his lead and run with it. So submission does mean respect. It does mean give your respect. I was thinking this week of Proverbs 31 and the Proverbs 31 woman, which has come under disrepute a little bit in our culture because it's such an unreasonable standard. And that is true. We are called to things that even on our best day we would maybe fall short of because it's the hope that one day we will be glorified and we'll be perfect. But what, what popped out to me about this passage is we have this stereotype in our culture that any difference means injustice. Right? If there's anything that's different, there must be something wrong there. But when I was reading over that passage, it struck me, this woman has to be in a marriage where she is smarter and more talented than her husband, right? If you look at Proverbs 31, it's like she, is, she doesn't even sleep. She's up all night making stuff. She has a little economy run out of her home. She dresses her kids in handmade clothes. She's the ultimate Instagram influencer. Everybody loves what she's doing. And yet, if you go back to Proverbs 31, it says she does her husband good all the days of her life. The heart of her husband trusts her, and he will have no lack of gain. You know why? Because the Bible doesn't actually speak in categories of difference means difference in value. See, what, what this is, is this is showing that the biblical categories that inform this passage are you can be as talented you can be as entrepreneurial, you can be as flourishing, you can be as out there making an impact as possible and still respect your husband. Amen. There is no diminishment in dignity in this passage. Instead, this is God's design for the flourishing of a home. Even if you have someone who's doing everything in Proverbs 31, it's possible for that woman to respect and honor her husband. So in this passage, submission does mean respect. It does mean respect. And every time you talk to couples about this kind of thing, one question always comes up, and that is, what do I do if my husband isn't leading? Like, what do, what do I do if I'm more spiritual in our home than my husband is? Or sometimes you'll have husbands say, you know what, my wife is just so much better at the spiritual stuff, so I just let her do that. Leadership doesn't always mean doing something. Right? As a father, the best thing you can do, even if your wife is so much more skilled at teaching the kids or other people or taking the spiritual life of your home, your presence will determine whether it's successful or it fails. When that happens, are you there? Are you engaged? Are you showing with your body language that this is important? Or is this like dad's time away because spiritual things really aren't for adult men? 
Your presence is just as important as what you say, how you um, set things up. You, behind the scenes and in the moment, can influence even if you don't feel as qualified or as adequate to lead spiritually. Just the fact that you're thinking about it, setting it up, championing it, cheerleading it, means you have taken initiative in your home. So, on the flip side, what happens if my husband doesn't lead spiritually? Find something you can respect and champion that and see what happens. Right? In 1 Peter, in this same kind of passage, it says, even if he's not a believer, continue to respect the things that reflect God, and maybe you will win him without a word because this is the way God has designed us to run. Men run when they are encouraged, esteemed, recognized, called to something higher. And our home runs well when a man loves and cherishes and sacrifices. Every couple is going to do this differently. But the picture for us this morning is how will your household reflect God's own household? How will you, as a husband who's given a responsibility by God for your home, begin to pursue that? How will you, as a wife, begin to pursue God's own reflection in your family? How will we all make sure that the center of our household is Christ? Everything about it, the way that it feels when you walk in, the things that are talked about, the way we relate to one another, the way we love one another, will it be evident to someone who comes in that, man, Christ is the center of this home? The way the marriage is, it's not perfect, but I see forgiveness there that I don't see in other relationships. The kids, they're not perfect. They don't obey all the time, but man, they really trust and respect their parents. Wow, the people that you work with are so impacted by your character and your submission to God. Does your household reflect the center of your life? So take a few minutes this morning as Sean comes back up to lead us, and maybe think about your role. For a minute, don't think about anybody else in your household. Think about your role in your household. What can you do to reflect God's character and love in your family? What can you do that if others looked in, they would say, man, there's something different here. God has really touched this group of people. I want to be like that because I'm trying to be like my heavenly father. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that uh, even in these passages, Lord, where there's some things that confront our sensibilities, we We trust that you made us, you designed us, you know how we flourish best. Father, by your spirit this morning, would you convict us in the ways that we're not living according to your word? Father, even ways that have been really functional for us and actually keep peace at home and ways that even make us feel good about ourselves that actually are settling for something short of reflecting your image in our home. Father, make our households, our extended families, little incubators for godliness. Father, raise up Christian kids and parents and employees and supervisors that are a direct sight into your heart for us. Father, use the people around us to mold us and shape us into your people. Father, we pray that our church as a household would reflect your glory, your trustworthiness, your sacrificial love, Father, that your son loved us and gave himself for us. Let's give ourselves for others. In Jesus' name we pray.